This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So if you're looking for the lifetime series totals for the St. Louis Cardinals versus the St. Louis Browns, or Pedro Martinez's ERA against the Yankees, this is not the place. But if you're into bad blood, you need to calm down and shake it off. But nonetheless, welcome. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Butler, and here's my arch rival. Jackie McCucci. And today, we are delving into the weirdest rivalries in baseball, although I'll be doing it better than you know who. Welcome to Bad Hops. Rivalry week, or isn't that what happens? Rivalry Rivalry hour? Rivalry Rivalry hour. Rivalry hour. Rivalry is a hard word to say over and over again, at least for me. I know, especially when I'm more into revelry than I am to rivalry. I I hear you. Give me revelry over rivalry (laughs) any day and do not ask me to say that a couple of times. What's your favorite kind of stuffed pasta? Just curious. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like ravioli is easier to say than rivalry and revelry. I don't know why. We can talk about, we can have a rivalry about, about pastas. Yeah, we can have a pasta off. A pasta off. That's kind of a good new year, new you subject, I think. It's like we can take the pounds off from eating so much pasta. That's right. So much delicious, sweet, sweet pasta. You're yes. very excited. That's, yeah. uh, I'm ha- no, I'm glad. I'm glad you're all, you're all riled up for the rivalry. The rivalry of the revelry and the ravioli. That's right. That's right. As we've sort of hinted at a little bit, probably the greatest rivalry of all time isn't Red Sox-Yankees. Although it could be. It could be. Taylor Swift versus Kanye West is possibly the true blood feud for all times. We're going to delve into that and maybe make it about baseball. We'll see. Well, I since you brought it up and because I, I knew there the two of them had a lot of weird back and forth, back and forth throughout the years, I, I looked to see if I could find some information. And apparently this has been going on for quite some time. It's been going on since... September 13th, 2009, from that whole MTV Music Awards when Kanye ran on stage and he was upset because Beyonce hadn't won. So then this has been going on, I think, until as recently. So there was a whole Billboard magazine article on it because I do not I do not follow this closely. And also, to be totally honest, I think at this point, you probably shouldn't be on Taylor Swift's bad side because they'll come for you. For all the Swifties that are listening to this podcast, uh, we're on Taylor's side. Um, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. And t- tell all your friends about the Bad Hops podcast, the only baseball podcast that reps Taylor Swift. Taylor, I don't know if she has a rooting interest in baseball. I know that people think she might play for both teams. That's a whole other story. That's for another podcast. Okay, okay Swifties, I don't know what Jackie's <laughs> talking about, but it seems interesting. I don't know. Uh, it's a whole thing. But anyway, that's all for this podcast. But I'm not, I won't go too deeply in it, but it did start. I mean, it's been going on since 2009 and it started with the VMAs and it started and Kanye had a Kanye had a song where he allegedly called Taylor Swift a bitch. Can we say that? We could bleep it. I don't know if we want it. I, I think you've just you've made some more um, interesting G rated um, language wise aspersions about her. So, yeah, I think you can say the B word. 
Okay. Okay. Well, that's what happened that he, he called her that in one of his, in one of his lyrics. And then there was some back and forth, whether or not she had known about it and had said it was cool. And then Kim Kardashian got involved. And honestly, Kim Kardashian, really, why do we, you know, I don't really care about the Kardashians. I do not keep up with the Kardashians, no interest in them, but it's still going on. And there's still a back and forth about that lyric where Kanye allegedly called her a bitch. So it is a very long timeline. And I'm sure that our, that people who love baseball do, do not want us to go in depth into this back and forth rivalry, but I would say it's a pretty heated rivalry. It is up there with a Yankees Red Sox. And I'm sure there have been a, uh, I know actually for a fact, having gone to some of those games, that there's a lot worse language than bitch being thrown out there during those games. We're going to talk about what makes a rivalry, but I, I also just want to throw this out early on as well, that we would also like to get Taylor's version. Yes, we would. If Taylor Swift wants to come onto Bad Hops and tell us her version, I am all here for it. I love Taylor. We love you. There is no rivalry between Bad Hops and Taylor Swift. That is Just true. want the Swifties and Taylor's lawyers to know that. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about Taylor and Kanye. Why don't, why don't we talk of some baseball? Uh, sure. I guess we can squeeze a little in here. All but right, all right. Yeah. So what to you, Jackie, what makes a rivalry? I think there, a rivalry has to come with some history, right? Where there, and also where there's some stakes on the line, right? Where there's 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 a reason, right? Like there's a championship, there's you know winning over the hearts and minds of the fans of your city. There has to be, you know, maybe a player that was traded to your team, or nowadays a player that probably wasn't traded but decided to sign with your rival because they were throwing more money at him. That's probably more what goes on these days with rivalries than, than with the trades. But yeah, I think there has to be some there has to be some skin in the game, as they say. I also I feel I and I've been reading this book and it's it's a brilliant book by Sebastian Smee. It's called The Art of Rivalry. And it's about four different stories about two artists that had a rivalry with each other. And it's brilliant because it's all about kind of the obsessiveness of their rivalry. So mm -hmm. there's Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud, uh, two 20th century British painters. Uh, again, baseball podcast, this is exactly the sort of stuff that we need to dig into is sort of modernist painters. Yeah, now you're really, forget about that, you're really going off into the egghead category here. Of course, we're on Team Bacon here just for obvious reasons. Well, <laughs> Who wouldn't be? Part of the, the madness of their rivalry was that they absolutely loved each other's work until they hated each other's work. So there was a working together. There was almost like, use my studio space, or why don't you try this? Or I'm working on a new technique. I'm, I've got something new going on. I want you to try it. It's like, well, how dare you do the thing that I just told you to do? And I think that's where, the, where rivalries get very interesting to me because it's when things boil over when things mm -hmm. get messy. And I think that's where we see fights in parking lots at baseball stadiums when all of a sudden a guy that was trash talking on the internet from one team and that post gets printed out and, and put up on the locker room wall to inspire the other team. But all of a sudden it spills over and the fans go nuts and they get crazy. They get violent. They throw stuff on the field. They attack each other. I mean, that's where it gets ugly mm -hmm. and certainly not something that, that I want to condone. 
there is a madness to rivalry as well that is almost inexplicable because at some point it crosses a line. So it's not just that the Giants have played the Dodgers for a hundred plus years over a multitude of locations. It's that it makes people crazy. It makes people who may not have an, an opinion between the cities of Los Angeles and the city of, of, of San Francisco. But then it's like, but the Giants need to die. I'm from Los Angeles and the the, the Giants, uh, I want to I kill them all. It's like, why? Don't you just like going to a game and having a beer and having a hot dog and having some fun? I don't know. Have you ever been to a rivalry game at all? Any of the, any of the, any of the, any of the rivalries? Yes, I have. I've been to a number of Cubs and Cardinals games back in the day. Although it's hard to say why either side cares, because Mm -hmm. I think for the, the majority of their history, the Cardinals would just have a cakewalk against the Cubs. And the Cubs, I think, just decided that they didn't like the Cardinals. So it was, yeah, it was a little lopsided. The Cardinals were the better team in general, it pains me to say that. Then the Cubs fans were just like the little like yip-yip dogs that were like biting at the ankles of Cardinals fans saying, oh, this, you know, you come to Chicago, you come play a day game at Wrigley, see how you like it up here. It's like, you know, Cardinals fans are like, yeah, I like it just fine. Seems seems nice to take a day off work and watch our team win <laughs> and then have time to go out for a nice dinner afterwards. So I know because you've followed better teams than I have <laughs> that you've been to quite a few rivalry uh, showdowns. I have. I've been to a number of Yankees Red Sox. Never never in Boston. I'm just I just don't think I can do it. I know people people enjoy it. They can they can do it. I think it's I think it's can be fun when you don't take it quite so seriously, but there is, like you said, there's something, there's a little irrational button that go that goes off in your head where like I won't even wear a red baseball cap. Doesn't even matter what the team, like if it's, you know, a minor league team, if it's thankfully none of my other rooting interests from other sports use the color red. But yeah, it's like that bad. Although now red hats are bad for a whole other reason. But uh, <laughs> like I literally can see red. And I've been to some games where the fans are getting now a little riled up. I had a guy behind me one time. This was years ago. It was actually at the old stadium at Yankee Stadium. And he was trying to be a cheering squad of one. So his the section he was in were mostly Yankee fans. And he just was screaming at the top of his lungs. And he was right behind us. And one of the women I was with, I thought she was going to punch him. Like they started to get at it a little bit. And then his friends that he was with, who were also women, by the way, they 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 kind of tried to calm him down and calm the situation down. But I get it. He wanted everyone to know that he was, that this was his team. But, you know, it was kind of an, an overcompensation where he was getting annoying. And then I've seen things where there was one time I was in the bleachers, which is an interesting experience for a Yankees Red Sox game. It's it's a it's a lot of fun. And usually you'll get a little bit of a mix of of some Red Sox fan, not fans, not a ton in the bleachers, but it so happened this guy came, Red Sox fan, and he's with his girlfriend who's also in Red Sox gear. So anyone who walked into the bleachers, I mean you're in the bleachers of Yankee Stadium and you're at a Yankees Red Sox game. If you're wearing Red Sox gear, you are going to get heckled. They walk in and people started, you know, yelling things, nothing really awful, you know, typical, you know, Red Sox sucks, typical, typical stuff. And this girl looked so shocked. Like she was so shocked. She couldn't believe that people were yelling at her. And it was as if she had never gone to a baseball game or had never gone, obviously had never gone to a rivalry game because she just, 
kept looking around and like, it's like, honey, what did you expect was going to happen if you enter Yankee Stadium bleachers during Yankees Red Sox, even not Yankees Red Sox, you wearing Red Sox gear, you're going to get heckled. But I've thankfully not been there. I've not seen beer throwing or, or fist fights or anything like that. I've seen mostly people getting a little over agitated, but not to the point where it's getting ridiculous. But, you know, you bring in alcohol and that's one of the right. That's the big problem. You bring alcohol into the situation in any of these things and a friendly rivalry can suddenly just turn into a holy terror, a big mess. But in general, I think it can I can think it can be fun. And the Yankees Red Sox rivalry has gotten more fun as it hasn't been so lopsided, right? So there's at least, there is more, the two teams have had, I mean, you can argue the Red Sox have obviously had more success of late, but the two teams are, they're both successful franchises. So it's a, it's, it's a true fun rivalry. And I've also been to Mets Yankees, which I'm one of those people that thinks after like, you know, the subway series, the subway series, but now that there was an actual subway series, world series, to me, that's where you prove it. Like, these back and forth, and we could, we're going to talk a little bit more about these rivalries that are created because of interleague play. They're fun. They're definitely fun. I enjoy them, but it will never be the same as, I mean, it was amazing during that Subway Series World Series. It was There was a lot going on, and I, we were, I mean, the, the whole city was totally into it. So it's fun. It's great during June to break things up, but I think some of the rivalries, especially with interleague, it's a little, they're a little forced. Absolutely. You asked if I had been to rivalry games. And yes, I've been to a few, not as many as you. I once went to a game and I didn't realize that it was a rivalry game oh. because I didn't care. <laughs> I This was back when I was living in Chicago and I was at a White Sox game. It was White Sox Royals. And I went with my coworker, Kevin, and we were riding the L down to Comiskey Park as they used to call it before it was changed guaranteed rate field. <laughs> Beautiful name. Just trips off the tongue, too. You know, we're, we're talking about, well, let's maybe stop and stop at this bar before we go in. Maybe we'll get some food, some street food. We'll go in and we, we get through the turnstile. So we've been together for well over 90 minutes at this point. Kevin turns to me and says, wow, this is just awkward. What, what's awkward? I thought we were having a good time. He's like, White Sox Royals. There is a lot of bad blood between <laughs> these two teams. And I'm like, you're going to have to fill me in. He's like, what? I thought you were a Royals fan when you were growing up. I'm like, I, I was a Royals fan when I was growing up, but I don't remember playing a White Sox game that mattered. He's like, what? Talk about a fight that was going to break out in the stadiums. So I thought he was going to throw his beer at me. What? All of those years that you robbed us of a chance to go to the playoffs. And I'm like, did, did we do that? And I said, you know, when I was a kid, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Like sort of early 80s? Like what? And he said, yeah, exactly. Early 80s. I said, the early 80s when the Yankees were stealing the Royals playoffs chances. So it was to me, it was all Yankees Royals. Yeah. And that was not, a rivalry back then for a while. Not not Royals White Sox. And Kevin just looked first. <laughs> he was like red, beat red. And then he just turned to like kind of like the color of paper. And just looked so crestfallen. He's like, what do you mean? It didn't matter. <laughs> so I feel like that, and this is kind of leading into the what we're going to talk about, the, the weak sauce rivalries, the ones that are manufactured, the ones that literally nobody cares about. The one that we laugh about the most is when the Mariners play the Padres. Of course, the story. Heated. heated. <laughs> the storied tradition of two cities that hate each other's guts, Seattle and San Diego, 
because how dare you come to my town and go on vacation (laughs) (laughs) and you pay that hotel tax that pays for our public transit system. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you don't think that if, and when the baseball season starts that it's going to, we're, we're going to be on the edge of our seats to watch Fernando Tatis Jr. And JP, JP Crawford go against each other. We won't get our blood won't get boiling to watch Seattle native Blake Snell pitch against our new acquisition in Seattle, Robbie Ray. (laughs) No, no, Will I go to the game? Probably because I want to actually really am interested in what the Padres are putting on the field right now. I've, I've not seen uh, Tatis play in person yet. I'm super excited. He is a very thrilling player because ultimately, right. I have teams that I favor, but I really just love baseball. Yeah. And I I, I love Tatis. We are going to see him, whether he's in Seattle or we're going to San Diego, we need to see him play live. Or if we're just like, going to a movie at the same place that he's going to a movie because right right now at this point in the the negotiations between owners and players it is looking like if you want to see Fernando Tatis you may you you may need to find out what restaurant he's eating at next week I mean and the Mariners and and the Padres they do share a spring training facility in Peoria so there you go imagine (laughs) if they actually hated each other really they would could be kind of Interesting. Somebody used all of the towels in the locker room. This is how rivalries start, man. Calling you out. Yep. This goes back to thinking about the the obsessive madness of these artists that I was mentioning in the the Art of Rivalry book. I love a player rivalry more than I love a team rivalry. Because you know what? Yankees, Red Sox, there have been a lot of years where it didn't really matter, right? Mm-hmm. You're playing you're playing for pride sometimes. Generally, I feel like the Yankees were smoking the Red Sox for many, many years. And it's like, it, this game doesn't really matter for the, the scoreboard. But players, when players hate each other, man, that's like where it gets really interesting. For one thing, mo- innocent people generally don't get hurt. <laughs> Usually, yeah. <laughs> it, but if somebody wants to pop another guy in the, in the jaw uh, or, you know, hit him with a pitch, I don't know. You know, I'm going to watch it. I'm not a hockey type person, but I, I like a little excitement. Throw down an old man like Pedro. <laughs> exactly. There have been a couple rivalries that have amused me because, again, they're just so made up. The, the, the Cody Bellinger versus Christian Yelich rivalry of a couple years ago. Belly versus Yelly. It rhymes. I, <laughs> and they were both like in contention to be MVP for the National League that season. They were both very exciting young players. I watched, I think it must have been at the All-Star Game or something, and then they, they mic'd up the two players, and they're like, yeah, Cody, what's your opinion on Christian Yelich? He's great. He is, like, so much fun to watch. He's such a nice guy. We had dinner together. It's like, whoa, Christian, what do you think about Cody Bellinger? It's like, man, that guy is just, like, awesome. I just, like, he just seems like something I'd want to hang out with. It's like, oh, so yeah, this is a real rivalry here. Oh, yeah. But we also have the fabled Mike Trout versus Bryce Harper rivalry, Mm -hmm. which I I think must be for jersey sales or merchandise sales or something, because how often have these guys actually faced off in the nine years that they've both been in the majors? They've played seven games against each other. That's it. Seven games because you know why? Because of rivalries, mm. because it would be an interleague game. And so that's our, still a little bit of a rarity. The Angels have a natural rival in the Dodgers for interleague play. 
Los Angeles mm-hmm. versus Los Angeles, the freeway series. Mm-hmm. The Nationals, where uh, Bryce Harper came up, always face off against the Orioles. But then when you have a natural rival, you don't go through the rotation as frequently. We also saw that with the Mets-Royals World Series a few years ago. The Mets always play the Yankees, the Royals always play the Cardinals, and so they don't rotate as much. Whereas I think the Mariners and the Padres play two games each season, (laughs) and then they play everybody else. But Mike Trout and Bryce Harper have never played a game of any importance because they were both on kind of, at the time that they would have faced off against each other, the Angels certainly weren't going to the playoffs, and the Nationals did just fine. Trout is one of those players, I know that Angels fans are passionate, but he's in Anaheim. He's in the wrong place, people would say. He's in the wrong city in California. He's If he was on the Dodgers, he was on the Giants, if he was on the Red Sox or the Yankees or, you know, the Cubs. I mean, he's a superstar, but he's kind of the superstar that everyone forgets about. He's an amazing player that's kind of never going to be as talked about as some players that are far in his talents are talented, but not as talented, like Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge gets talked about a lot. He's a talented player. Is he as talented as Mike Trout? No, he's not, but it's all about where he's playing. And without ever being on a team that's been in playoff contention where they would be meeting someone in a division playoff on a consistent basis, where you could have a rivalry kind of coming up between Trout and whoever the division rival would be, that would also make his profile, even if he's not the most exciting personality, it would create, it would at least create some type of drama. But there's just no drama there. And it's kind of a shame. I mean, he he may go his entire career with ever even sniffing a World Series. Mark, you tasked me with weird rivalries. And so I tried to do a dive into finding rivalries that I hadn't thought about. And I know you've done a lot of historical stuff. Uh, so I, but I was trying to keep it in the modern era with teams that we've heard of. <laughs> and, and you you don't like the black and white photos? I, I love the black and white photos. I really do. I get a kick out of it. I love the history of baseball. Uh, it is rich, it is storied, it is there's it's a lot more interesting than people give it credit for because there's a lot more there because we get a lot of the surface stuff and you and I are going to do more deep dives into that as we move on with other episodes but I wanted to find something that might be a somewhat modern rivalry that we overlooked and I came across Red's blogger Jamie Ramsey I don't know if you've ever heard of him he writes quite a bit about the Cincinnati Reds he compiled and made a very good case sort of, for a Reds-Oakland A's rivalry. He did a blog post on it, and he pulled a lot of information from the book The Big Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, and Red Lake Journal, also by Rhodes and, and John Schneider. So apparently the two teams, over the past 50 years, they have two World Series appearances among them, where they played each other, and they've also had 33 interleague games. So they have met up a bit. But I, I think to go back to what we think a rival makes a rivalry, I think meeting in the playoffs, that's really where rivalries start to simmer because we talk about Royals, Yankees, there's even a Dodgers, Yankees at what like teams that meet in the playoffs, that's where that kind of history starts to boil up and create a rivalry. Well, like you said, skin in the game. Skin in the game. Right, exactly. So the first time the A's and the Red Sox, Red Sox, see where my mind goes, where the <laughs> A's and the Reds, <laughs> really they have to stop naming teams so too similar. 
<laughs> the A's and the Reds met up in the 1972 World Series, which was interesting because the Reds were kind of this clean cut, military style haircut team against the, and you remember the OG Oakland A's with their long hair and their mustaches and the, you know, with the little, little handlebar mustaches. So those were some, some sexy beasts. Those were those are mustaches. I like those mustaches. You you're using a little wax in that mustache. Bring it on. <laughs> two different styles, two different styles of play, two different styles of teams. So a few things happened during this 1972 World Series. Reds left fielder Pete Rose got pelted with tomatoes and eggs at Oakland. Once again, people coming into the stadium with eggs and tomatoes in their pockets. I don't understand. You hit in the grocery store before you go to the game, just stuffing your pockets with poultry. I don't get that poultry. Oh, there's a farmer's produce. market in the parking lot of the stadium today. How convenient. <laughs> exactly. Pardon me. Do you have any fresh coconuts? <laughs> just want to know. I just want to know where they're getting all this produce and whatever from. So there's a, there was a, the ace catcher at the time was Gene Tennis, and he was named the World Series MVP. He hit four home runs. Tennis was a native of Lucasville, Ohio, and he was scouted by the Reds, but the Reds passed on him. So he was the, one of the difference makers for the A's in this series. So there you go. Kind of, you know, a player sort of, there you go. Local boy makes bad. Yeah, exactly. Local boy makes bad. Here's something a little bit more ominous. During the series, an anonymous phone call was placed to Cincinnati police that threatened Tennis's life um, if he hit another home run. And before game seven, a man with a gun who was making threats about him was arrested at a Riverfront Stadium ticket window. So Jeez. really kind of scary stuff there. I had no idea that... This, that it got quite so heated even back then. The series went to seven games. The Reds lost three to two. And after the win, A's owner, good old Charlie Finley, remember him? He was a oh, big yeah. personality. And manager Dick Williams, they danced on the top of the A's dugout after the win. Wow. Nope. Couldn't find any video. Didn't know if it was like a jig or I don't know. What, what was the big dance back in 1972? The Funky Chicken. Possible. It is possible. It is. It's possible. <laughs> then there's good old. Do you remember Vita Blue? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I love that name as a kid. In fact, my dad had a had a friend whose name was Elliot Blue. I always thought it was a cool last name. If you had married Vita Blue, there would be a song after you. That's right, Jackie Blue. <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. So on December 9th, nineteen seventy two, the Reds actually acquired Vita Blue from the A's. They got him in exchange for minor league outfielder Dave Revering and $1.7 million in cash. However, on January 30th, the commissioner vetoed the trade, claiming he was protecting the game's competitive balance. But I know, right? Like, I mean, this is just wow. (laughs) You kids, this is for the good of baseball. You'll understand when you're older. Interesting enough, though. Blue's headshot and bio appeared in the Reds media guide. So I I don't know why they couldn't remove it in time. (laughs) What's the Oprah thing where if you if you can visualize it, it it happens? Maybe it's like if we (laughs) if we sell a jersey with his name on it, if we sell a red jersey that says blue on it, 
at worst, just create a lot of cognitive dissonance. But at best, maybe he'll come pitch for us. Yeah. All of these are better explanations than for the good of baseball. From 1972 World Series, we jump all the way to the 1990 World Series. So what? Many years later, but still that rivalry, it was brewing that whole time. That might sure. trade, right? Not a single player are on on either squad at this point, but sure, the rivalry continues because one guy got mad at somebody. Exactly. 1990 World Series. Hall of Famer Juan Marichal was the A's director of Latin American scouting. His son-in-law was Jose Rijo, and he was traded from Oakland to Cincinnati in 1987, and he ended up being the 1990 World Series MVP after allowing just run one and nine hits in 15.1 innings. So mm-hmm. there we go. It's a flip side, right? To hear this, this, this little tidbit is interesting on a whole, on a lot of different levels, not, not from a rivalry perspective, but just because. So Red's pitcher... Tom Browning had to leave game two because his wife had gone into labor. Browning didn't think he'd be missed since he was scheduled to start game three. But as the game headed towards extra innings, manager Lou Pinella, known to be a calm guy, right? Very chill. (laughs) Very chill. Very chill. He considered using Browning as a pinch runner when Lou needed him. He couldn't find him. (laughs) So I guess he didn't tell the manager no one told Pinella that the guy had to leave because his wife was giving birth but wait it gets better Pinella asked marty brenneman and tim mccarver who were the tv announcers mm-hmm. to issue an all points bulletin urging browning to return to riverfront stadium <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> yes Browning didn't learn that he was being summoned until the ninth inning. However, he did decide to remain with his wife until she gave birth to their son. So he did not leave her side. He did not go back to the game. He was actually there by her side. He was still in uniform when when she gave birth to him. That's a good photo op. But okay, so game two of the World Series, he walks out, doesn't listen in the car on the way to the the hospital. I mean, maybe, <clears throat> maybe he was, I don't know if it was their first kid. So maybe he was nervous. Maybe he's a little freaked out that he was going to get there on time. Or so he could have had it on and like, but not been listening. Yeah. I, could, I could see a, a case where you'd be a little freaked out. I like Lou Pinella, but I didn't never knew he was so resourceful as to employ all available media outlets to <laughs> send out an all points bulletin. <laughs> My pitcher's gone AWOL. Can someone please find my pitcher? <laughs> Here's another another little, little balloon gate that happened during, during this series. So the A's were six outs away from forcing a game five. When in the top of the eighth inning, with Dave Stewart pitching seven scoreless innings up to that point, a balloon floated onto the, the mound. <laughs> So Barry Larkin was at the plate and he was, he was the batter. He was down a ball and two strikes. So Stewart stepped off the mound. He pops the balloon with his spikes and he puts the balloon in his back pocket. Apparently that did him in with his concentration because Larkin singled. The next batter, Herm Winningham, he singled. Paul O'Neill reached on a throwing error by Stewart. And with the bases loaded, Glenn Braggs hit into an RBI ground out to tie the game. Then... The next batter, Hal Morris, hit a sack fly, and then the Reds led two to one, and that was the final score. So his concentration was blown, literally blown away by a balloon blowing into his into his face. 
like, and not, you know, just just took him out of his zone, I guess. That's the pressure of the rivalry was getting to him. And the balloon was simply a metaphor for the pressure cooker of the, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the fact that it's a, it's a rivalry. If you're playing someone in the world series, right? You, right. It's a seven, it's a seven game. rivalry. Right. It's just, and exactly. It was basically was a, has been a 14 game rivalry between these two teams. Yeah. And, 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 you know, ask me how I feel like in November, uh, if I still care about the guys that we played last time. Exactly. The Reds anthem during their champ during this championship season was Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. Apparently, MC Hammer, aka Stanley Burrell, he was born in Oakland. Yeah, Oaktown 357. That's right. And he actually was a bat boy for the A's under owner Charlie Finley. So <laughs> even though the Reds picked him at his, his song as their uh, anthem, he was actually he was an he was an O-Town boy. So there you go. Rivalry. A's Reds. Let's hope we see it again someday soon. I did. Can you consult your calendar? I, I, we're overdue for an A's Reds series. Then if it's every 18 years that the, the cycles of the so. moon, uh, we're a little behind. We're behind. If only either team was any good. <laughs> well, I mean, Oakland has done more of its fair share of being competitive. As opposed to the red, I mean, when when was the last time the the Reds were competitive? Was it nineteen ninety? <laughs> it's it's very possible. I, th I think that may be correct. I'll give you this. Okay, there's more meat on that bone than there is for a Mariners Padres rivalry. Even if the Mariners mm -hmm. played the Padres in the World Series, I feel like it would they'd somehow take it to six games and say, "Good job, you guys." <laughs> Let's just say well it's done, good. well played. I don't know. If that happens, I'm going to come with a balloon. I'm going to have a balloon in my pocket because I feel like I could sneak a balloon in and I'm going to hit it out to the mound. See if I'm I can up. You're going to bring some fresh coconuts. I'm bringing tomatoes. I'm going to bring whatever, whatever is at the market, whatever's at the market. I'm just going to stuff my pockets with. What's what's an underrated splattable uh, thing to throw? Persimmons, I think. Persimmons. Are, yeah. yeah. I'm going to throw kale. <laughs> a little hard to, hard to get the you're going to throw the it in the first inning. It. You're going to throw it in the cap. first inning and hope, it, and hope it gets to the field by the third inning. That's right. Well, maybe just, you know, sort of a walk. bunch of kale. I'll just like, I'll just like tie it all up. Big bunch of kale. You there can, you go. You can, you can wrap it around one of my coconuts. I'll spot you one coconut. <laughs> Speaking of violence, I guess. <laughs> As I said earlier, I like a rivalry between players because i think that gets really juicy and ugly and it does in fact get violent although no tropical fruits were harmed in the making of the story when i'm thinking about somebody that has a rivalry it's pretty easy to start with ty cobb because he hated everybody he was against everybody which is crazy because you know he's on a team but i think he well we will find that he truly does hate some of his teammates but yeah, Ty Cobb was a super competitive guy, so I'm not going to fault somebody for being competitive. He wanted to win every batting title. He wanted to make more money than anybody else. He wanted to win the World Series. He just wanted to be the top dog. These are all good motivations. But and he had his own candy bar. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he, had his, <laughs> he had his own way of serving corn as well, as, as it turns out. <laughs> this is all fine. But as we were talking about with rivalries, it's about that obsessive madness that something spills over. And it really does get complicated when you're playing a team sport. 
but I'm looking for the madness. I want I want frothing at the mouth sort right. of stuff. Let's bring in Dutch Leonard. Now I know what you're thinking, Jackie. You're like, oh, another story about Emil Dutch Leonard. It's like, no, wrong. That's the right-handed pitcher, Dutch Leonard. I'm talking about the left-handed pitcher, Dutch Leonard, Hubert Dutch Leonard. He was also a super competitive guy. Just for the sake of clarity, Hubert Dutch Leonard, the lefty, was the first one. Okay. And then Emil got the, the name Dutch as an homage to the first one. So there's a strong lineage, much like the A's-Reds rivalry. Maybe we're ready for another Dutch Leonard. <laughs> Although I think since Dennis Leonard pitched for the Royals, I don't know that we've had another Leonard in Major League Baseball. It's time. It is time. So I want to take you back to 1914. I think <laughs> I feel like idea. last episode I took you back <laughs> at least 40 years before that. But you did. Running water, electricity, let's see, automobiles, lots of things that changed in the world. Good old Dutch Leonard was pitching for the Red Sox, playing against the Tigers, which was Ty Cobb's, really was Mr. Tiger. Dutch was pitching and Ty Cobb came up to the plate. Dutch plunked Cobb in the ribs. Maybe that was an accident. Who knows? Ty Cobb, as the easygoing guy that he was, lost his mind. This is both a testament to how violent this guy was and how good of a ball player that he was. His next at bat, Ty Cobb dragged a bunt in such a way that it forced the Red Sox first baseman to come off the bag, which meant that the pitcher was going to have to cover the plate. So Dutch Leonard had to run over to, to first base to try to, to get Ty Cobb out. That's exactly what Ty Cobb wanted. He put the ball in play exactly to engineer this play. And as soon as he got to first base, he jumped up and landed spikes down on Dutch Leonard's foot, drawing blood. Oh, oh, and that's when spikes were spikes. (laughs) Yeah, probably automatically made out of rusty iron. God. Dutch Leonard lived. That's that's uh, because. <laughs> but did his foot live? Is the big question. Because it wouldn't be a rivalry if the guy instantly died or had got tetanus like three weeks later and, and expired. Now it gets a little more complicated because in 1919, five years later, Dutch was uh, went to the Tigers. He was sold to the Tigers. Dutch was now all of a sudden playing for Ty Cobb's team. Mm-hmm. I think Ty Cobb had a pretty good memory about who he didn't like. I want to tell you something, that they became more than teammates. Oh? <laughs> yeah. It got a little more complicated than that. We're going to get it's a little more on, it's complicated. A little more on that. Uh, yeah, is there, is there a Taylor Swift song that I should be referencing here? Probably. Does she, does she have one called It's Complicated? If not, I just need 5% of the, the publishing on that. They played together as teammates for two years, and they, like I said, more than more than teammates. 1921, though, Ty Cobb became the Tigers' manager because there's nothing like putting a hothead that's got a lot of opinions and is always looking out for himself and put him in an important role. Ty Cobb took great delight in regularly fining Dutch Leonard for violating curfew. Apparently, whatever Dutch Leonard was making from the Tigers, a lot of it went right back to the Tigers. This kind of made me think of one of the terrible scenes in the movie, The Babe. I knew you were going to go there. Yeah, this is all. It's <laughs> it all, all the, goes back to The Babe, doesn't all it? All about the callbacks, all into the black hole of one of the worst movies I've ever seen. When John Goodman has his big moment t- telling his lady friend what he really wants to do instead of play. He wants to be a manager because he wants to make sure that his team is in bed and ready to get some good night's sleep. 
maybe that's what Ty Cobb was looking for. I think there was probably a little bit more of a sadistic, like, I need to own this guy. Mm. Apparently, they had a really great dynamic, though, because Ty Cobb once left the door to his office open and faked a phone call saying loudly to make sure that basically everybody, but especially Dutch Leonard, could hear, I'm putting that damn Dutchman on waivers. That's got to make you feel really good. Oh, yeah. By the end of the season, Dutch Leonard had had enough, and so he bailed out to play for Fresno in the San Joaquin Valley League, which I think is the league best known as the the one that doesn't have Ty Cobb in it. (laughs) Cool. You go to play for Fresno instead of playing for Detroit. Fresno still does not have a major league team. I just want to point that out for posterity's sake. Should it really? I'm going to say we'll have somebody from Fresno on to make a case for why they should be ahead of, say, Montreal getting their team back. Mm-hmm. Jumping ship from the Tigers to Fresno, got good old Dutch Leonard banned from Major League Baseball for joining an outlaw league. Ooh. And the sources that I read in a really great article that uh, Joe Posnanski wrote about Dutch Leonard capitalized the O and the L in outlaw league. So I feel like that, that that was an official designation by Major League Baseball. As you can imagine, the paycheck for the San Joaquin Valley League was nowhere near what the Tigers were paying good old Dutch. Mm-hmm. In 1924, he kind of caved in. But I have great news. The commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a name that I can't get enough of saying. It is a magnificent name. So Judge Landis reinstated Dutch so he could come back and play. Even better news, Jackie, he could keep throwing the spitball because he was still grandfathered in after Ooh. the spitball got banned. If you were throwing it legally, you could you were grandfathered in until you were actually done playing. I, I did not know that that weird rule existed. I didn't either, but cool. And even better news, he automatically got his old job back when he was reinstated because there was a very restrictive clause in players' contracts called the reserve clause, which basically said, until the Tigers say that they're done with you, you play for them. But, you know, he got his job back, and and now he was making Detroit money and not Fresno money. Oh, just one catch. Ty Cobb was still his manager. Of course. So 1925, things are going great. Dutch is 11-3 and midseason. He's a really good pitcher. I mean, he's not just like a chump that's serving my story. He's a pretty notable pitcher. He has a a great lifetime ERA. Mm -hmm. So he's he's, he's the real deal. But his arm is getting tired, and but his doctor is telling him to take it easy. And so he reports back to good old Ty Cobb, easygoing Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb, very sympathetic guy, says that he's a shirker and says, and I love this quote, and again, this is uh, Joe Posnanski uh, helping me out on this one. Don't you dare turn Bolshevik on me. Ooh. I'm the boss here. Fancy words. Yeah. I feel like more people should call other people Bolsheviks. Let's bring it back. Yeah, get get ready for that. Just a, that's a, an advisory and a threat. We're still in 1925, middle of the season. The Philadelphia A's versus the Detroit Tigers. Dutch is not having a good day. His arm is getting tired. He gives up 12 runs and 20 hits in the game. Ty Cobb will not pull him from the game. It got so bad that the A's manager, the opposing team's manager, Connie Mack, pleaded with Ty Cobb during the game to take Dutch out of the game, (laughs) saying, you're killing that boy. But no luck. Nine innings, complete game. Dutch only got one more start for the Tigers, and then he was waived. 
Dutch was certain that his old pal, Tris Speaker, who was the, the manager of the Cleveland Indians at that point mm-hmm. in time, and a former teammate, would pick him up so that he could play for Cleveland. But no luck. Let's circle back to that special relationship that, that I was hinting at. Mm-hmm. Um, 1919, the year that, that Dutch and Ty became teammates, they put a little venture together with Tris Speaker and a pitcher named Smokey Joe Wood. Smokey Joe Wood. That's another great name. Second just, best name in this story, yeah. Definitely no, second best name. No Kennesaw Mountain Landis. No, I mean, who is? So the little venture that, that Dutch and Ty put together with Tris Speaker, because it was very important that someone from Cleveland was involved, the Tigers and the Indians agreed that they would fix their last game. Because here's the thing, Cleveland had already clinched second place for the season. They mm-hmm. they had no window to get to, to first place. Detroit was stuck between third and fourth place, and there was some prize money that was accessible for third place teams. And so it was going to benefit Detroit to win the game. It was going to cost Cleveland nothing to lose it. So a gentleman's agreement, this is all, you know, totally legit, right? Just throw in a game. Oh yeah. So you can get some prize money. Well, 1919 is a simpler time, I guess. (laughs) Apparently not. (laughs) So like I said, they had a little venture in place with some Indians folks to, to make this happen. But you know what? While we're fixing the game, Let's bet on it, too. <laughs> Again, totally, I'm sure there's nothing. Sure, totally innocent. Nothing that'll get you banned from baseball or anything. Detroit did win that game, unsurprisingly, since the fix was in on it. Mm-hmm. The The length of that game, one hour and six minutes. Oh, my God. Seriously? They, they didn't just throw the game. I think they just, like, just dumped it on the floor. And what did they allow, allow like one home run? And then it was just like, okay, nobody else can score. Let's get this over with. It it was nine to five. So I think probably a lot of uh, pitches were tipped and yeah, definitely sounds like a, just a sloppy mess of a game that, and then they just got it over with for historical context. And for all you John Cusack fans out there, this was the same year as the Black Sox scandal where the, the Chicago White Sox threw the world series. This was a time when everyone else was doing it, Jackie. All the kids are doing it. Games. It's cool. Yeah. The problem here is that, and this will also come as a surprise to you, that guys that fix baseball games might uh-huh. not be trustworthy. Really? I know. This is full of shockers, right? Dutch, starting to suspect, and again, this is back in 1919. Dutch thinks that Cobb might not have been straightforward about the bets that they made on this fixed game. Huh. That's That's shocking. Apparently, money was being sent to some men in Chicago, quite possibly the same guys that actually engineered the whole World Series fiasco for the White Sox. Dutch basically put up some money and then entrusted it to to Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker and Smokey Joe Wood, and then I think was essentially waiting to get his benefit from the Mm -hmm. bet. All of this is now looming in the background of the Ty Cobb-Dutch Leonard relationship throughout the 20s. I'm sure that Dutch Leonard was finding some ways to be either subtle or very overt to Ty Cobb that, hey, I think you owe me money. I think you screwed me over on this whole deal. And so Ty Cobb then decided to just basically like ruin this this pitcher's arm in the process because that's what he could do as the manager. And I think that probably also is what sent Dutch Leonard to Fresno in uh-huh. the, the good old San Joaquin Valley League. So Dutch finally has had enough. 1925, we'll flash, flash forward again. Dutch does what he feels like he has to do. He has to narc. 
He's made tons of threats, and he also has two letters, one of which is from Ty Cobb discussing the, the bet. And the letters are archived uh, because they were ultimately possessed by Major League Baseball. He first tells Detroit's owner and then the president of the American League as well that he has these letters that are going to incriminate Ty Cobb and Chris Speaker. Frank Naven, the Detroit owner, and Ban Johnson, the AL president, they do the right thing. Finally, someone's doing the right thing. And they pay him to shut up. <laughs> they give him $20,000. Part of the transaction where Dutch was paid to shut up, mm-hmm. uh, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker were apparently strongly encouraged to retire immediately. Mm. And they were both, they were player managers uh, for the Tigers and the Cleveland Indians, respectively. And and they did. So two of the great players and great managers in the game suddenly, mysteriously retired. And they just said that they were ready to try something new. Sure. Go off into the sunset. That's right. Count their money. What's unclear is how these letters became public. But in the Joe Posnanski story, there are excerpts from the letters. Maybe Ban Johnson, who was a straight shooter and wanted the American League to be a clean league as opposed to this wild and woolly National League, which I want to get into in a later episode, because apparently the National League was sort of crazy. I love crazy. Yeah, we need more of that. So maybe he did it as a sort of a pure heart person. Maybe it was Judge Landis who wanted to clear the air because he was the one that oversaw the penalties on the White Sox. Maybe it was Dutch Leonard that somehow retained copies of the letters and wanted to put this out there. There's also a theory that Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker leaked the letters to the press because they thought that it would help clear their names by implicating them. By implicating them and other people. Yeah. Maybe not the smartest legal I mean, So it wasn't just us. It was everybody. So it must be okay. Yeah. Ty Cobb testified to Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and he denied his allegations. But in his testimony, he did reassert that he considered Dutch Leonard to be a Bolshevik. A Bolshevik. There we go again. The ultimate insult. Now, Dutch declined to testify because he was fearing reprisal from, quote unquote, that wild man, most likely Ty Cobb, or those men in Chicago Mm. who would be the bookmakers. Without testimony, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker were allowed to return to play, but not to manage. That, that was never clearly articulated, but they came back two years later. Of course, they were also two years older. They were already kind of in the twilight of their careers. Didn't really amount to much. But just as they mysteriously disappeared from the game, they mysteriously rematerialized, both playing for the same teams because of the reserve clause. Huh. Dutch Leonard moved back to California where he took his $20,000 nest egg and bought a fruit farm, a winemaking facility, and did quite well for himself. I found it really interesting as we're looking at rivalries that these two guys, uh, Ty Cobb and Dutch Leonard, started as enemies. Mm -hmm. Then they became teammates. And then they became partners in a venture that nothing could possibly go wrong with. But then a weird hierarchy formed where all of a sudden Ty Cobb was Dutch's manager, essentially decided that this was a the best way to, to enact a vendetta against the guy. And so I, then they became they became enemies again, but they were I feel like they were always rivals throughout the whole process. For sure. I mean Ty Cobb sounded like a mean masochistic guy. 
that he was just going to torture this guy. I think he probably he probably enjoyed it. He seems like the kind of guy who would have been, you know, if he was a woman, he would have been a dominatrix for sure. I don't really want to do Ty Cobb fan fiction like that. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly if do you not. can find Ty Cobb fan fiction like that, if anyone out there knows of it, I would love to see it. I, you know. <laughs> Dear Sports Illustrated, I never thought this would happen to me. <laughs> But I was mysteriously transported back in time to Georgia, where a gruff son of a gun whipped me and chained me. He was my manager. He was my manager. It happens, stranger things have happened. That's my weird rivalry. Uh, That was a good one. I enjoyed that. Thank you. You you would say that I probably won tonight then, right? No. I mean... Hmm. I, I don't. I don't think so. Well, that's that's okay because I, I I say so. <laughs> you're just lucky um, that I'm not Ty Cobb because I, oh, you're also, we're also not in the same room at the moment. But uh, yeah. like, <laughs> you know what would happen if you stamped on my foot? You know that I anything physical that I am going to win because I will fight dirty. <laughs> and see, this is where I'm going to wear you down, and I'm going to make you keep re-recording your sessions over and over. And even when the doctor says that you should be stopping, I'm going to I'm going to keep sending you up to the microphone <laughs> <laughs> until I have no voice at all. Fine. Uh, exactly. I stumbled across possibly the ultimate weak sauce rivalry, mm-hmm. and I. Do not know why there's so much about this online, but there's a ton about this. And this, of course, is the rivalry between baseball and lacrosse. Mm. I'm sure you've known this for your whole life, but I'm relatively new to, to well, all Well, sure, this. you know, growing up on Long Island, I mean, lacrosse is a big sport, but I, I do not recall the lax men and the baseball players uh, having uh, heated rivalries against each other. Well, I'm, I'm going to cite my source here as lacrossepack.com. And I'm going to read a, a couple excerpts from seven reasons why baseball players absolutely hate lacrosse. The number one reason is baseball and lacrosse compete to attract the same athletes. Oh, no. Don't, doesn't every sport, like, at the, like in the United States, we have so many sports that they're, we're, all, like, we're all competing. Yeah. And I feel like lacrosse is not even on the radar when it comes to that. And you know what? It gets what? worse. Reason it number does. two, baseball players don't have the option of playing lacrosse. Is it the same season? Is that why I think it's around the same time? I, I, I think they coincide. Yeah, uh, if, I, yeah. if I recall, if I recall, yes. Because I have actually been to lacrosse games, believe it or not. I've been to cricket matches too, and I never sat at, at, at any of these games and said, this is really tarnishing the name of baseball. You guys need to stop. Just end it now. Reason number three, and this is out of seven reasons, I would rank this as like number 15. <laughs> Every sport has to have a rival. Is that it? That's the reason? Every sport <laughs> That's the has reason. To... So we pick baseball. I mean, why not hockey? Why not soccer? I feel like they're... I and, and again, I'm cited, citing from this scintillating uh, article here, but for example, basketball and wrestling share a rivalry with one another as well. It's like they do? Do they? <laughs> do they? Is it April <laughs> Fool's Day? Is it? Are you? What's going on? <laughs> you know, again, I'm citing from what I assume is the leader in the industry, lacrossepack.com. Reason number four, both sports battle for a limited amount of high school resources. So, okay, this now this feels like it's one person's rivalry against baseball. I'm going to say that the person writing for lacrossepack.com might be biased. Shocking. 
Reason number five, there are times when the fanfare must be split between baseball and lacrosse. What is the fanfare that's going on with lacrosse? Now, lacrosse is lacrosse is a very preppy, it has a very preppy reputation as a sport, but as far as fanfare, I'm not quite sure. I I want to understand the fanfare around lacrosse before I can compare it to baseball. The citation here says there are Unfortunately, there are times where baseball games and lacrosse games are scheduled at the exact same time. So basically, the rivalry is that they share the same season. Is it, that's what I'm getting from this this article? They have I the just... same season, so they're competing for <laughs> similar players. It's at, at at the same time, and that's what it sounds like to me. I, I got to admit, Again. when I saw the word fanfare, I was really hoping that maybe there would be like Chuck Mangione was a lacrosse player, and uh, that inspired him to to uh, write. Uh, the great flugelhorn hit rise. By the way, I just want to point out we've kind of gone for bragging rights because we're you know we're rivals with every other baseball podcast, but there's literally no other baseball podcast talking about this right now. No, flugelhorns. no one is talking about. No one is talking about baseball versus lacrosse. Reason number six: This rivalry has been passed down from older players to younger players. Okay, okay. so the reason it's a rivalry is because it's a rivalry. Reason number seven, the internet blows this rivalry out of proportion, (laughs) you think? Does it? Does the internet, though, really blow this out of proportion? Has anyone stumbled across this site besides you and a couple of lacrosse players? Now I'm starting to wonder if this might be AI-generated content. Um, I mean, it reads like it is. (laughs) the, The final very introspective question, is the rivalry between baseball and lacrosse widespread? It's not as universal as you might think. <laughs> you know, I always thought it was universal. I mean, I, I, I don't know. When I was in high school, they, they all hated each other. Baseball players, lacrosse players. It was, it was awful. It's terrible. Wow. Wow. I, I, I will never look at lacrosse the same way again. I feel a little better about the Mariners-Padres rivalry now than I, uh, now that I know that baseball and lacrosse have such... Uh, honestly, it. <laughs> honestly, it makes the Padres Mariners a scintillating matchup. Yeah, it's a it's a blood feud. It's a blood feud, a bloodbath. All right, Mark, yeah. I, I I think we've got to go after that. I th- I'm I'm actually I'm physically in pain after that. <laughs> <laughs> you want to shoo us out? I'm going to shoo us out. I'm going to shoo us out. So grab your lacrosse sticks. Here we go. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field. And we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the stadium organ. I'm Jackie Micucci. And I'm Mark Butler. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at Bad Hops on Insta and everywhere else. Until next time. Bye-bye. Love you, Taylor. (laughs) Taylor rocks. Taylor forever. Woohoo!